Well, thank you, Bill, for praying such a simple and yet profound request that we would know that we're sons and daughters of God, that we belong in the kingdom of God. Because in so many ways, that's really the question, isn't it? Wasn't I had, a, I had a more pithy intro here, Bill, but you kind of sidetracked me. Like, I mean, that's, that's the prayer request, isn't it? I mean, if we knew that, if we genuinely knew that we belong to God, if we genuinely knew that when we came to sit down at the family room or when we came and saddled up at the dining room or we, we, we came and, you know, woke up and we came down at the breakfast bar and we're there with God, that God doesn't going to look at us and go like, are you kidding? You know the week you had? What do you think you're doing here? This, this is for the obedient ones. This is for the impressive ones. Like you, outside, you can pick through the garbage after we're done. But, you know, my special kids belong in here. You, you're on the outside. Or if we truly knew that we belonged in the kingdom of God, that, that there was a place for us, despite all of our weakness, to, to really have a future where we're going to be co-reigning with Jesus, not as God, but as his, his intended ambassadors and delegates, made in his image, an image now perfected. Like, if we truly knew that, I mean, you wouldn't have lived like you lived this last week, right? Like, if we truly knew that, so much of what would just, that seems to still squeeze out of our hearts would just be gone. We'd be like Jesus in some ways, you know? Knock me over, squeeze me, mess with me, it's okay. What comes out of me is pure. That, well, what, a, what a great prayer, Bill. Thank you. What a great ringtone, too. Whatever's going on over there. That's, I'm sure it was a, a gospel song, right? Let's turn it up. We're, we're, all, we're all locked in right now, man. All right. Secondly, just so that we're all thinking about it, how many of you guys were tracking the flame after it got, uh, there are a few of us in the front, just so you know, just lit it. And it was like, yeah, this thing's lit, right? And then it, we, we just wasn't sure. And I believe Zoe and Christine were over there like fist pump rooting for this candle <laughs> to really kind of go because it's on now. And I thought, you know what, honestly, that's just so much of life, right? There's this thing that seems true as a spark. And you're like, I know it's potential. That could become a flame, or it could go the other way. And there's, so there's just, yeah, there's just wonderful metaphors and pictures and all that kind of thing going on. Back to Lord of the Rings, which is the illustration I was going to actually try to open with here. If you're a fan of the book, if you're a fan of the movie, if you remember, not the Hobbit stuff, the Hobbit was a money grab, but like the actual Lord of the Rings masterpiece that was created a long time ago, that when it first came out in the theaters, uh, I was just like, yeah, I can't go see that stuff. I'm not into fantasy. I'm not into any of this kind of thing. That's dark. I watched the first video and little golems getting tortured. And I'm like, well, I'm out. You guys all have fun. I cannot see this thing. It wasn't just so you know, my little, my little uh, growing movement from that point of terror to actual, you know, fanboydom. Like, it came about actually because not of the movies themselves, but of all the extended stuff that came along with it. It was amazing to me to see that this whole saga of movie being made called actors to stop everything they were doing. This wasn't a normal movie where people were going to go do a project for a while, then do another project, then return to their TV show and all that kind of stuff. Like this, this cost them years. The planning had been just... It felt like centuries in the making. You had people who made chain link mail for hundreds and hundreds of costumes that only added to the periodness of it, but ultimately was never seen in the movie. You had people who kept putting feet on actors day after day after day, only to find out that the feet never showed up in the movie at all. Like, and yet these people were dedicated to something. And I, I, there's something about that. The, the cost and the call that really just drew me in. And then I realized, oh, you guys made a good movie in the meantime. And it was pretty you know, enjoyable to watch. And then... 
I'm, I'm one of these backwards people who then read the books after that. But whether you got into it just because you just jumped on the bandwagon or because you really thought it was pretty good or because you, as I think true Tolkien fans would claim, read the books, loved the books, and then begrudgingly went and saw how the movies ruined the books, no matter where you come from in it, you know that what Tolkien created took way too long to wrap up. Because there was the saga of this fellowship. And then when the fellowship parts, you've got this story and you've got this story. And so in the movie, they're trying to tell parallel storylines. And it's hard to know when to back, you know, jump back and forth. Tolkien was just having none of that. He's like, I'm writing this book about this group. There we go. And then I'm going to write another book about the other group and you can figure out the timelines on your own. Like he's just, but at the end of it, no matter what approach you take, you got to wrap all of it up, right? That's the way I feel every time we're going to end a book. I just want to let you know, I never know how to wrap these things up because there's a text we're looking at, Galatians 6, 11 to 18. See with what large letters I'm writing this to you. Hmm, Okay. And at the end, there's a nice little benediction, you know, peace upon everybody. Oh, that's great. Grace to you. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. But the, we've done a lot in Galatians, and I just feel like there's a certain, you know, sense that we've got to remind ourselves what we've read over this fall, because I feel like this has been kind of a transforming book, at least in my psyche. I don't know if this is one you're kind of like, let's get on with Christmas. You know, you're kind of like Ryan. And he's like, we're singing the carols. Let's, let's you know, let's start preaching the, the, the Christmas story too. Next Sunday. This Sunday, we're going to do a little bit of a recap. All right, and I, I never quite know. I asked Christine, I said, should, should I do like 10 points from Galatians? She's like, you've done that before. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that again. <laughs> I'm not though, not really. We're going to do three things this morning. We are going to do a little recap, and it's not going to take up all of our time unless I keep telling, you know, introductory stories. Um, we are going to recap a little bit, just because I want us to remember how we got here. All right. Then I want us to look a little bit again at the structure. There's a little bit of an interesting structure to this, uh, this last little bit, oddly enough. And then what we're going to focus on are some of the statements that he makes that are almost just kind of like throwaways. You know, this doesn't count for anything. This doesn't count for anything. What counts is new creation. You're like, well, that seems pretty significant. So we're going to spend time on the significance of that at the end. But let's look at the recap here first. All right. These are going to feel like hopefully familiar verses, but I do want to just jog your memory a little bit so we remember where we started in the beginning of the fall whenever we really dove into this. And it began this way. I am astonished. Right? I mean, didn't that, didn't that beginning of this book kind of like shock you a little bit? You know, we realized kind of as we talked this through that this was Paul writing to a group of people who were the first groups of cities and the emerging churches that kind of developed out of his first missionary journey or church planting journey, whatever you want to call it. It was the first time that he left because God had sent him from Antioch, called him out and said, I want you to go. So he went to an island first, then he went into the mainland. And when he got to the mainland, he visits these churches, these churches, he plants these churches. And then after he leaves, a big controversy erupts. Here's how he describes it. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who distort the gospel of Christ. You remember that, that emphasis, right? And maybe it's that Paul learned to be more tactful in writing letters, because this is probably his first one that he wrote to a group of churches. Later on, he's going to start with grace and peace. And hey, Corinth, I know you guys are like suing each other and you're ranking each other. And some of you are sleeping with each other like and you shouldn't be. But boy, the grace of God is just evident in your church. And you're thinking, how bad was Galatia? That if that church could be commended in a way that these guys weren't, is it that Paul just evolved in his letter writing skills? I, I don't think. I think, and what I tried to argue from the beginning of this book, is that there is something at stake in the argument of this letter and of what we would consider to be a book of the New Testament that is so fundamental that it's appropriate for Paul to do the kind of stuff that he does. Not only does he call all of them out here and tell them, I'm just... I am flabbergasted, to use an old word, 
that you guys would be so quick to desert the best news you've ever heard and to trade it away for not second-class news, but no news at all. Because there's nothing new about the idea that you got to do something to earn your way to God. That has been the fallen DNA of every false religion from the very beginning on. God is looking for those who could impress him, which is just an amazing concept that a creature would be made by a creator and that the creator was then hoping that that creature would do something to wow him. That's not the way creator-creature relationships work. The creator is always the one who wows. But every religion has always said, we need to wow and impress him. We need to earn something from him. We need to put him in our debt to make it as offensive as it truly is. We need to, through our obedience, obligate the creator to work our will on the earth, work our will in our lives. We need God to do what I want him to do. And the way I'm going to bribe him is through my obedience. That religion stinks. And Paul's astonished that the grace of God would be presented to them and that they would then trade it away for some horrible version of Judaism or some weird return to paganism. Something at the end of it, it's not a gospel. It's not news. It's not even good. It's just the broken system everybody's been broken in forever. And I'm astonished. Do you remember that? Okay. That's the way this letter started. Now his tone shifts at times until later on he's going to actually talk to Paul or he's going to talk to Peter, if you remember. The, the Peter, Cephas, the rock, the one on whom the church is to be founded. And he's going to tell him off. And he's going to brag about it in the letter. We're like, whoa, you've got some energy going on. And the approach that I was encouraging us to take towards this, that I think Spirit's encouraging us to take, is to get anxious about this, energetic about this, like Paul was energetic about this, right? All right, that's chapter one. Chapter two. So he said, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What do you notice about what he's so angry about in chapter 2? It's not about what you teach. That's what he's angry about in chapter 1. Your news ain't news. He's angry about their life. And he's saying, there's a way of destroying the gospel that is about how you talk about something that denies the gospel, but there's also a way of destroying the gospel that's the way that you live. And what was Paul or Peter doing that was so offensive? He was sitting at the wrong table in the lunchroom. Because when he walked into the lunchroom, it used to be that he knew who the cool kids and the non-cool kids were in the Jerusalem psyche. He knew that there were cool kids and there were non-cool kids. And he used to go hang out with the non-cool kids. He used to hang out with the Jews. Or sorry, with the Gentiles. And he had, being a Jew himself, being the Jerusalem Jew himself, even though he was up in a different city, he was hanging out with the non-cool Gentiles. And he had no problem doing that. Even though the most strict and religious Jews back in the day would never associate with the Gentiles. In this new economy, in this new message, in this new church and community that's formed out of the gospel, this is what you do. And Peter realized this is what you do until the actual cool kids from Jerusalem came up. And we had a question about what was actually going on in the middle of that, right? Was this just... Peter kind of succumbing to the fear of man. Was there a greater threat that's going on? This is the wonderful thing about reading the New Testament. We just don't know. We take our guesses. We try our best. And then we're content with the mystery and the fact that we're reading in a different language in a different country at a different time. And so we're trying our best to understand the actual context of things. But the point that we can get, no matter what conclusion we arrive at, is it's not just what you say with your mouth. It's how you live your life. It's who, the, who you sit with at the table that can actually matter. And Paul confronts Peter and says, man, when the cool kids entered the lunchroom, you switched tables. What were you doing, man? You said they were okay until somebody else came in and then you're like, eh, you're not okay. Actually, I'm going to go sit with the cool table. And now that the non-cool table, Gentile guys are all like, what's going on? Aren't you glad that Paul kind of went to bat for the Gentiles? You Gentiles, Right? We wouldn't be a legit church if this moment hadn't happened, right? We'd always be second tier in the kingdom of God. If this kind of thing hadn't happened, we would be ranked lower than the more 
acceptable Christians, maybe the ones who could trace their DNA and their, their, their heritage back to Judaism itself. We, we're, we're imports, right? We're grafted into this thing. And Paul went to bat for us. And praise God, you can come and feel like you actually have access to God. Not because somebody defended what was taught, but also that he defended those who were living in a way contrary to the gospel. So that's chapter one. That's chapter two. Chapter three, then, he gets into the whole DNA behind it. What's so wrong with trying to impress God with the way that you live? And he's, he's, he takes it apart, layer by layer by layer by layer. But one of the key texts was right there in chapter three. He said, it is written. Here's a quote in the Old Testament. Cursed be everyone who does not buy, abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Wow, those are some loaded words. Cursed, all, do, abide. You've got to, if you want to impress God with the law, you've got to be able to present him a paper with 100% on it. God is not impressed. He does not round up. He does not sort of, you know, grade on a curve. If you're going to come to God and say, God, see my record of obedience. He's like, did you get 100%? I did not. Well, then I'm not impressed. Hence Christmas, by the way. Because one arrives, right, who actually does get 100% on the test. But the whole point then for everybody else who's not Jesus, you, not Jesus, me, not Jesus. The whole point for us is that if we're going to try to impress Jesus by our, God the Father, by our obedience, we're under a curse, and he says, so it's now it's evident that no one in that way of thinking can be justified before God by the law. Why? For the righteous shall live by faith. A faith that this is God's plan. It's not an evil plan. It's not just a cruel setup to try and get you to try and then be like, ha, you were never going to, this is just the worst escape room ever. You had to pass 613 different ways of getting out of this room. And if you didn't unlock every single lock, you're stuck in the room. Ha <laughs> I tricked you. No, 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 no. That's the curse if you want to play that way. Or you could just look to Jesus as like, actually, I'm the way out. You could just come with me. No, we're going to get to the locks over here. Well, okay, you better get every single one or you're stuck. Oh, okay. So it's by faith that Jesus knows the way out of this. It's by faith that he leads us to the Father. And if that's the way you're going to live your life, blessing for you. If that's not the way you're going to live your life, man, you should be miserable. You, you just should. That should be the curse that's on you right now. If you're trying to impress God, you know deep inside you're lying because you know you're not impressive. Chapter 4 continues, though, and his tone changes, right? He was astonished. Chapter 4, he's afraid. He says, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. They, these opponents, they, do you remember the way we interpreted this word? They zeal you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you may zeal them. It is always good to be made much of, to be zealous, but for good cause. He's getting at the energy behind what was going on in the church. You got a whole bunch of people who are really energetic about you getting them, getting energetic for them because at the end of the day, they want to, and we're going to see this at the end of chapter six, they want to boast in the numbers of converts that they've got. That's really what they're all about. They need to, in kind of a grotesque way, count foreskins. That's what they're all about. They're trying to figure out how many did we get circumcised? How many notches do we have? Because if I can come in and I can win you over to my way of thinking and I can tell you that through circumcision, that's the way you impress God. That's the way you qualify before God. Then I get some notches sort of in my belt and God's impressed by my number of notches, which at the end of the day, that's the idea of counting foreskins, not the grossest metaphor in the book, is it? Paul doesn't have trouble wading sort of, you know, ankle deep into the blood of this analogy and saying, do you recognize what you're trying to do? This is kind of gross. And if you make that the main way that you impress God, well, gosh. Second, we didn't even talk about this, but the whole gender exclusivity of it, right? I mean, circumcision is primarily a male thing. So, you know, the lady's got to be going, um, do we get apart in trying to impress God? 
On one hand, Paul's like, you could, but frankly, you don't want it because this is all just messed up. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to make much of you so that you make much of them, but at the end of the day, it's for no good purpose, but it's good to be zealous for a good purpose. We would love for you to be made much of for a good reason. Because at the end of the day, let's just kind of break it all down. A broken system leaves you in your flesh. Focusing on winning God, God's approval by what you do with your flesh, leaves you in, he now calls it, and just ranks the whole thing as the flesh. And in chapter 5, he just says, you know what that's like, right? The deeds of the flesh are evident. You know when you're broken. You know when the world is broken. You know when things don't feel right and you see the world trying to make sense of it and you know they can't. It's just obvious. Everything from strife to sexual immorality, all the problems of this world, they're just obvious. So what we need are the deeds of the spirit, right? That totally different metaphor, right? We've got what the flesh can work. But we've got what the spirit can produce. And so the job of the tree is to grow. That's it. And then let the dirt and life and, and nutrients and water just do its thing and produce fruit. It's, it's an amazingly freeing analogy. If life is going to work against you to produce the kind of stuff you don't want to see in the, in the other, you should be zealous that something else should happen instead. And he's like, you're right. Here's what I want you to do. Just do what Jesus said and be connected to him. That's what I mean by this faith thing I've been talking about. Just through faith, connect yourself to Jesus. Through your obedience, yes, but through your meditation on him and his life and his promises. Read the Bible and think of Jesus. Abide in him. And then the Spirit's going to do something when you recognize that you're now loved by God. And he's going to produce love in you and everything else that goes with that fruit. It's just, it's just an amazing contrast. If we can... Get rid of this whole broken system and we can come to God and we can say, what do you want me to do? He's just like, um, how about you stay here? We'll just use that whole Psalm 1 thing, right? You could just be like a tree that's just planted. Don't walk and stand and sit over there. Just come here and be planted. And let's just see what happens. That's, that's why we do this thing. This thing and all the other things. It's not because at the end of the day, we're trying to impress God. It's at the end of the day, we're trying to drink from God. We're trying to be nourished by God. We're trying to be reminded and so that he can then produce stuff in us. And if he does, his point at the end of, of, of chapter five there is there's just no way that that kind of a life breaks any of God's laws in the first place. There's just no law, pagan or religious, that's against what God produces in you. And if you're looking, politically speaking, for how to evaluate a government, business speaking, how to evaluate a friendship-wise, if you're looking for wisdom in this world, just try and see if the laws of other people's lives violate what the fruit of the Spirit is. That's just the best way of judging friends, of evaluating as a country moving in the direction that it ought to, is, is are they creating laws? Just think of it politically. Are they creating laws that violate what God wants to produce in us with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Is, is the law of the land, are the laws of this friendship, are the laws of my family, are, right? We've all got these kind of laws. And Paul says, like, this way that God is going to recreate you, it just won't break any of the, the, the laws that ought to exist in the first place. And so then every law really gets measured by that. It's kind of a simple way of kind of evaluating the rest of life, too. It's, it's amazing, really, isn't it? There's, this has been a complicated book. But at the end of the day, the prescriptions coming out of it, there's a lot of descriptions of brokenness and why things don't work. But the actual commands, the actual prescriptions of it are relatively simple. Come to God, abide in him, bear fruit as you trust him. Make sure that you're trusting him and not trying to impress him. I will say it again. The righteous people, they live by faith. 
And there we are. But this is hard. And so in chapter 6, he gives us this really weird contrast within two verses. Sometimes you're going to walk through life and you're going to be incredibly burdened. And when we see that in each other, totally we should help. But in the process of trying to help each other, two potential errors are going to arise. One, you might get tempted. So you've got to watch out on, your, on yourself. But two, the person you're trying to help might give up too much of their load to the point that they have no responsibility left at all. And you've kind of broken that second constraint. So I want you to go down this road of bearing one another's burdens. But don't shift so far to the one side that you get tempted and smug and self-righteous and all the other dangers that can be there, right? Nor that because you're helping somebody, you think you're invulnerable to that same kind of sin because you're like, well, I help people who struggle with that. I would clearly never struggle with that. Ah, that's one danger. On the other side, you could be so good at helping people that they could start feeling just totally dependent on you and like, oh, I can't do anything in life. And no, 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 he says in verse five, no, each has to bear their own load. And so we have this world of burdens and loads and there's a lot of nuance in terms of how we try to think that through, right? Zoe and I were talking about that because we've, we've talked often about that verse and she was in children's ministry last week and she's like, I just can't wait till you get to the spot where you're going to talk about burdens and loads. And I was like, that was last Sunday. She's like, no, no, I was waiting for the burdens and loads. So the good thing is I, I do think that there have been some moments in this book that we'll probably come back to at some point in time and maybe just kind of revisit again because there's some real meat on that bone left for us, I think, as a church. That, though, got us through chapter 6, at least through chapter 6, verse 10, and it leads us up to this last little section here now, all right? And here's the way that the section's kind of bracketed. It begins with this strange phrase, see with what large, with, with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, that is tricky, right? This may very well be a reference to something about Paul's disability, right? Because he said, you would have plucked your own eyes out if you could have helped me. So maybe this is a point just about his eyesight, right? And it's, it's very, very possible. Other commentators have suggested that maybe this is like his sort of way of saying, guys, do you see me? I'm about to underline some stuff, all right? It might be him saying like, by my own hand, I am going to write in some big letters right now. So what I'm about to say in these next eight verses, I want you to hear me kind of highlighting and underlining things. That, that's possible too. Again, come to the Bible without complete clarity on everything that's behind the scenes. But it is interesting how kind of bracketed at the end of it, he also talks about his weakness. He says in verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, which tells you a lot about the way that he's thinking that these people have been harming the people in, in, in Galatia, right? For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So we've got in this, just these final comments, Paul talking about some things that are kind of ailments for him, right? As we make our way in a little bit more, he's going to talk about his opponents again. Verse 12, he says, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So he talks about folks, questions their motives. They want an easy life. The easiest way to kind of define life is to go back to that notching, that foreskin counting kind of world that we were in before. And that's the way they want to live. And I'm telling you, man, that is just not the way to go. He says in verse 13, even those who were circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Keyword. Keyword. Because he's saying, kind of the way he was talking about making much of things before, he's, he's saying, look, we're going to be zealous about the right things. They're zealous for the wrong things. They want you getting zealous for the wrong things. It's good to be zealous for the right things. Here he's using the same word. He's going to recapture this word, but he introduces it by saying, here's what they brag about. Revel in. Exult in. Here's what they make a big deal about. Your flesh. Again, kind of gross. At the end, verse 16, he says, but 
for all who walk by this rule, this one that he's, but we're going to get to, all right? Kind of narrowing in on it. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God, which is not a reference to those who are genetically Jews, but a reference to much like what foreskin was to portray and circumcision was to portray the Genesis or the Jeremiah four text that Bill read for us. You're not to circumcise just your body. I want you to circumcise your hearts. I want you to remove what's dead inside you. He's using Israel in kind of the same way. The people who were circumcised that way inside, not just outside. Those are the folks that are the true Israel of God because there's something of this faith I've been talking about going on inside them that remakes a new people of God. So Paul's been all over the place, right? He's talking about his ailments. He's talking about his opponents. He's kind of offering toward the end of this text a blessing on those that are going to actually be living according to what he's talking about. So the question is, at the end of the day, what is it that he's actually talking about? I think this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Verses 14 and 15. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And if we didn't have Paul being a very orthodox author up to this point, you might think that Paul has just at the end gotten so exasperated, so depressed at times that he's straying into heresy. Because look who's being crucified. This is not the way we sing about the cross around here, is it? We talk about the cross of Christ. Why do we talk about the cross of Christ? Because Paul said, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's been abundantly clear. Go to any other of his letters and he's going to make the point over and over and over again. There was one person on the cross. There was one person there as a substitute for you on the cross. It was not you going to be on the cross. That cross belongs to Jesus. It's the cross of Christ. It's the cross that is central to our thinking because he's on it. And what he did in getting to it, what he did when he was on it, and what happened after he was brought down from it, it should change everything. Your life needs to be central around the cross of Jesus. But here at the end, he's not talking about Jesus being crucified. Here at the end, he is saying the cross, and he titles it right, of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which two other crucifixions take place. The world gets crucified, and I get crucified. This is different, and it should make us like, what? We should feel the speed bump in the road at this, like, little introduction. But it does ask a question of us, right? Have I been crucified to the world? A corollary question is that because of what we're talking about with the cross of Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ, has the world been crucified to us? And it, it, it's an odd way of saying it. At one point when he's dealing with the divisions with the Corinthians, Paul asks them, was Paul crucified? And his obvious answer there is like, no. And if it wasn't Jesus, or if it wasn't Paul who was on the cross, then stop paying attention to whether this teacher or this teacher or this teacher is more important, right? He's kind of making the point. There's only one person on the cross. But he also makes this point. Listen to this in Romans chapter 6. If you've been with us for a while, you know that, that the points that Paul's making early on in his letter writing to the Galatians, he makes kind of at the end of his letter writing to the Romans a lot more full. So we've, we've bounced between these letters oftentimes. And here, here's one of the moments that I think it, it helps to unpack what he means. We know, he says, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's Paul's main point. If you have a slave, you own the slave, right? And again, remember just first century, slavery was not racial primarily. It was economic. 
So if somebody has a debt to you, they can, they can kind of fulfill that debt by becoming your slave. All right. So it's, it's, it's an indenturedness more than a racial uh, cruelty. That's why it's hard to read the word slave for us today because there's just so much imported into the word. But trying to put ourselves back in this, this way of thinking. If you owned a slave, right? Someone who owed you money and they were working that debt off through a lifetime of service to you. And you, through treating them poorly or just through whatever process, they died. Guess what happens at the moment of that death? The debt is repaid. You, you, you owed me your life of service. However long your life went, you, you no longer are there. Paul uses that same metaphor to be able to say what happens in the cross did something to your old master of sin. You really did come into this world with a master telling you what to do. Your relationship with God was so broken and it was, you were actually more of a slave to sin than you were to God. But if Jesus is the one who died and he died for you, then there's actually something else that happens at the same moment. It's not just that you're united to Jesus in that he pays the penalty for your sin. You're actually so united to Jesus that there's something about you that died too. And Paul in Romans 6 calls it the old self. The old self was crucified then with him so that the cross of Christ ultimately becomes my cross to sin. I'm dying with Jesus. He talks about it less though as the cross. He talks about it in Romans 6 more as the grave. So that when Jesus goes into the tomb, we who are united to Christ in his death are actually united to him in his burial too. What happens at that moment? Economically speaking, slavery principles gone. My now, I'm dead. Whatever happens next, if there's something that happens next, it won't happen with the same relationship to sin anymore because I'm dead. And now my relationship to sin is broken. So that if somebody could bring me back to life and sin came along and said, ah, my old slave, we who were thinking rightly about what just happened in our life through our death and through our resurrection, through this recreation that happened, the reanimation of us, we would actually rightly come along. And, sorry, Olivia, you're not sin in this case, but you're just sort of in the way. We would say, hey, Olivia, I don't belong to you, right? I, no, you're not my master anymore. You don't have any right to tell me what to do, which is why Paul just over and over and over argues this point. Like, guys, you're dead to sin. You're dead to sin. You're dead to sin. Stop living as though I can tell you what to do. It's just hard to unlearn old ways. It's hard to break addictive cycles that we think control us. And the solution is remembering death. It's not that Jesus died so that we live. That's the shorthand of it. Jesus died so we die. Jesus lives so we live. We can go from his death to my life, but we got to trace the path. And Romans 6 traces the path. But do you see the point I'm trying to make here? Is that in the, hang on. This is going to get good and my voice is going to betray me. John Stott says it this way. Listen, listen to the, his unpacking of this point. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in, the uni in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. And of course, men do not like it. Women, you're included in that too if you want. They resent the humiliation of seeing themselves as God sees them. And as they really are, they prefer their comfortable illusions. So they steer clear of the cross. They construct a Christianity without the cross, which relies for salvation on their works and not on Jesus Christ. They do not object to Christianity so long as it's not the faith of Christ crucified, but Christ crucified, they detest. And if preachers preach Christ crucified, they are opposed, ridiculed, persecuted. Why? Because of the wounds which they inflict on men's pride. The attitude of the Apostle Paul was totally at variance with these views. Because though the cross condemns our pride, and though the cross 
crucifies us to the world. And so because of that, we are able to say, actually, there's something about you, world, that died too. All of your allures, all of your temptations, all the path that I used to walk down with you on the unholy trinity of satanic activity, the fear of death, your world's allures, all the temptation of it. I don't have to walk that way anymore because I'm dead to you. You're dead to me. I'm going to pick somebody else, Olivia. You're dead, Brad. I'm dead to you, buddy. You're dead to me. This thing is broken. That's what the cross did. It crucified you. It crucified me. It brought death into the equation. And so now what is the question? But there's no now what if you don't willingly come to the cross and say, I got nothing. I am not impressive. I am not able to obey at such a point in life that obligates you to anything in my future. I can't look to my past and justify it. I can't make any atoning work for it. And therefore, I have to come to somebody dying for me so that I can die, the world can die, sin can die, and then I just entirely put myself in the hands of faith and say, whatever you say is next. Whatever you say is next. That's the faith that Paul has been pressing for this whole time. And yet the world whispers from its dying wounds, come back, come back. I can still do this. I can still bring life. I could still comfort you. I could still make a way. He, he didn't get it right. We can still do this thing together. Let's come back. And the cross casts a shadow and says, you're dead. Shut up. You're dying. Shut up. And so the first question we have to ask is, have we been crucified to the world? The question isn't, has Jesus been crucified? He has. But if you're going to abandon works and embrace faith, you got to understand you're dead. You're dead to the world world's dead to you. First question. The second question is the what if then? If I'm dead, if I'm in the grave, if that's what's going to happen, then what's next? He says, well, verse 15, it's not going to be circumcision. And you see how stupid that whole argument has been. You had to die to something and the thing that was going to break the power of sin in the world in your life was going to be you getting a piece of skin cut off your body. Or, ladies, you being attached to somebody in the family structure who had that done so that the benefits of that could then be imported to you. What are you doing? Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. So it's not as though we're just condemning those that are putting hope in circumcision. We're actually getting the guys on the other side of the conversation who are thinking into the same way. Yeah, you stupid circumcised folks. Ha ha, I have confidence in my lack of circumcision. Like, oh, well, I didn't want to be thinking about that. And honestly, that doesn't count either. What are you doing? Why are you buying into this? And if it's really hard to kind of get into the circumcision thing, right? Maybe it's better for you to think in terms of blanks. Neither blank nor the opposite of blank counts for anything. Neither whether you homeschooled your kids or didn't homeschool your kids counts for anything. Neither whether you are an officer in the church or whether you are not an officer in the church counts for anything. Whether you are successful or you are unsuccessful counts for, see, this is what's hard to preaching to a group of people, right? It's like all of us fill in those blanks, the neither snores, with our own personal thing that we think is gonna be the thing. I mean, yes, God's gonna reject 99% of the stupid categories you guys have, <laughs> except for mine, because mine's pretty good. Neither the preachers nor the non-preachers count for anything. Oh, well, that's the way I was living my life. I gave everything so that I could obligate God because I'm here preaching. Yeah, but that doesn't count for anything. You seriously think whatever you're going to fill that blank in with is going to get you out of the grave? You think that's actually going to create new life? It's going to obligate God to some sort of a, a good future for you? That's what you were putting your confidence in? Are you kidding me? There is... Only one hope that you have if you've been crucified. 
And that's that somebody with the power to bring you back to life would bring you back to life. And that's the point that he makes. So the question is, have we been crucified to the world, the world to us? And then are we being remade? There is a yes, one time brought to life kind of thing. But interesting, Paul doesn't put it in a category of something in the past or something in the present. He just puts it out there broadly. New creation. That really frustrated me because I wanted a point in time creation or something. I wanted something else. And Paul's just like, nah, man, here's a broad category you get. New stuff being made, recreating works in your life. And this has frustrated the best scholars for years, which is why I wanted you to hear from John chapter 3. One of the best theological minds of Jesus' day comes and sits with Jesus. And he's like, man, you got it going on. And Jesus is like, yeah, you got to be reborn. Do you mean I must crawl back into my mother? That would be crazy. Yes, that's what, what is wrong with you, man? You're the teacher of Israel. You don't know Ezekiel 36? It's a classic text. I'll sprinkle you with water and you'll be clean. I'll remake your heart because it's dead. Jeremiah 4, you're, you're, yeah, we'll use a, a, an agricultural metaphor. The ground of your heart needs to be tilled back up again because there's a lot that's dead and dry and not producing anything. So we gotta, we got to rework the ground, man. Your hearts, they've got stuff there that just needs to be cut away. There's so much dead there. It needs to be cut away. Your hearts need to be circumcised to the Lord. These are, these are tough metaphors, but what are they pointing Nicodemus to? You have to be remade. That's what has to happen. You have to be remade. And Paul just says it broadly. Circumcision and creation. Are we being recreated by God's spirit? But let's ask the first point in question. Have you seriously been coming to God for so long in your life that you actually think that your attendance at church is what obligates him? Your obedience to him is what obligates him. Have you hoped that what was going to get your life out of the grave was going to be something that you were doing? Or have you put your faith entirely in the, the work of Jesus Christ? Because he's the only one that Paul and other authors point to and say, actually, God bringing him to life, that was the decisive moment that all of, that all of humanity and all of creation needs to come back to. Everybody needs to come back to the point of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because the one who has the power to do that has the power to do anything. Because it wasn't just a death that he had. It was a death for humanity that he died and so him coming back to life, man, it's like the first little shoots of ground coming up or first few shoots of plants coming out of that ground that you thought was dead. If humanity had been dead for millennia in Jesus, there's hope for something different. And that's the question. Are we so joined to Jesus that his death kills us and kills the world to us? If we are, then we're actually still so create, or still connected to him that we are being recreated and remade in the same way that he was brought from death to life. That, that would count, wouldn't it? If you could truly live this kind of Galatians 5 sort of life where the spirit could so be at work inside you that you didn't have to work to be loving, but you just were, you didn't have to find things to be joyful about, but there was a joy. It's why, honestly, writing these little things that we've been doing for Advent is incredibly difficult. I, some of the best parts, by the way, came from Jess this week. Um, but there's just, there's something really hard about trying to write about what hope really is, what joy really is, what peace really is. Because we can accept all these weird substitutes, right? I mean, just listen to the lines of Christmas carols these days and you realize how many popular songs are just empty at the core. But people still want hope and joy and peace and love. We desperately want the spirit to be a work inside us producing fruit that we can't create through straining at the branches. We want this so desperately, the only way it happens is death and new life. Death and new life. That's it. Paul says, that's all that counts.
So here's the last question. Will our church be consequential? Will we count? Will we matter? Or will we just do the same dumb thing for the rest of our lives? And at the end of the day, God would say, sorry, that was all dead. Will we really count? It's hard to know midway through our life cycle. Approaching a year that will be our 25th year as a church. It's really hard to think and to ask, like, will we matter? I don't know exactly how the world keeps score. I know all the weird ways that I am unlearning to keep score. But I'm grateful when Paul says, this is actually the only thing that counts. That we kill off the ways that we rank ourselves, the ways that we try to impress God, and we come back to this point that we could be a new creation. If this were to be true, I'm going to skip the, the two slides that we got there, Trevor. If this would be true, then what it means is that everything has to revolve for us around the cross of Christ. This is where Paul starts in verse 14. He says, far be it from me to boast... Remember verse 13, he had said, they're all boasting in you and how many, you know, scorecards they can create. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's that boasting word that I said he introduced and then he's coming back to there's something about quoting John Piper at times. And then there's sometimes it's just better to hear him. 25 years ago, almost, John Piper preached a message on this text, Galatians chapter 6. And there was a part of me that was almost like, guys, I'm taking the week off. We're just going to hear from John. But the most popular part of that was in the introduction. We're going to end our time before the, the team comes up or the team will come up somewhere in the middle of this video clip. And he's going to call us to a life that matters only if we boast in the cross. Only if we exalt and revel in and rejoice in the cross. Only if the cross becomes the true son of our solar system and everything else revolves around it. The true son of our church. And we revolve around that message will we really matter and will things count so let's uh let's kill the lights if we need to and um i'll kind of watch this i think it's about a five minute clip here <laughs> 